Hello and welcome to the podcast, What I Wish I Knew as an NQT, with me, Jeremy Crook. This is a show where my guests and I will share with you our experiences, both good and bad, of life as a new teacher. Today, I'm joined by me, only me today, because uh, my lovely students at the Essex Primary Skit have asked me lots of questions now that they're almost qualified teachers. And I thought, what a good way to do a podcast by answering the questions they asked me. They gave me loads, actually, loads and loads and loads. So I reckon the next 15 podcasts might be me answering questions, except I guess that would be rather tedious. So this is one question and answer type session, and there'll be others to come in the months ahead, um, because the questions they asked were so interesting. So I've picked a few. So this one was Helen, and she said, why do some schools still set children by ability? Brackets, I hate that word, when all the research shows it does not work. I've got to admit that when I had my own class, I never had ability groupings. I was never a fan of it because I felt that the less able children, the lower attaining children, however you want to term them, knew that the work they were given was easier. And therefore, I found it much more useful following the sort of mastery approach we we use now where children start learning all together and then you just accelerate progress for those children who are ready for it. I found that much more productive and got to say the results I got in my class were always extremely good. And therefore, from my own personal experience, I'd say setting or streaming by ability is unnecessary. So why do teachers do it? Well, as the Education Endowment Foundation has noted, existing evidence suggests that setting and streaming is not beneficial for pupil achievement. And those who are least likely to benefit are most likely to suffer negative effects are low-achieving, disadvantaged children who get placed together in the bottom set or in the bottom group table. So why do they do it? Why do schools do it? if the evidence says it doesn't help the learning of the children? Well, in my experience, they do it for a number of reasons. They do it because deciding where to pitch the learning is easier. Deciding when to increase the challenge is easier. Deciding which resources to use is easier. And deciding where to place human resources is easier. Now, you can see that most of the decisions are made so that the teaching is made easier, and it's not because the learning is made better. Now, this wouldn't matter if all children benefited from this approach and there was highly effective teaching for all pupils, especially the lower attaining ones. I can understand that you want to ease the teacher's workload. They have huge demands placed on them, and I can't see anything wrong with choosing an approach that makes the teacher's life easier as long as it affects no one's learning. Now, that's the issue, of course. For example, let's let's, let's think about an example. Say you set your classes on ability, current ability, of course, because attainment, as we all know, can change. Which teacher would you choose to teach the lower attaining children? Logic would say, of course, take maths, for example. Your best maths teacher should teach the lower attaining pupils because then their progress can be accelerated and then it's possible to close the attainment gap. But often this isn't the case. 
The lower attaining children are more commonly taught by the teacher who is less confident with maths, supported by teaching assistants who may also lack confidence and may be subject knowledge in teaching maths. So what happens then to children's attainment? Well, they don't make the progress they could make. So then the attainment gap widens. Now, that doesn't make sense, does it? Because what we want to do is to close the attainment gap, not by slowing down the highest attainers, but by accelerating the progress of the lower attainers. Now, of course, what happens in those lower attaining sets? Children think they're thick. They do. I don't care how hard you work. They say, I'm in the group who aren't very good. Now, in the best schools who set, they work incredibly hard at saying this is all about personal achievement. This is all about you improving your best. This is all about you comparing what you did yesterday with what you did today. But that's not always the case. And very often children's self-esteem, their belief in themselves as learners goes down. And that can't be a good thing, can it? So if you are going to set, even in your own classes, red table, blue table, green table, think very carefully. Think very carefully about the esteem of those children and more importantly, whether they believe they can be good learners or not. Because if setting children by ability, to use Helen's words, causes children to believe they can't do something, then don't do it. Because what we have to do is to get children to believe they can constantly improve and get better. It's quite tricky, this, talking to yourself. Is it? Why is that? Well, you haven't got anyone to bounce your ideas off. So then sometimes you struggle to find the right words. Hmm, yeah, I can see that. I'm just having a conversation with myself here because uh, I'm not a great fan of talking to myself, although I used to do it a lot when I was a head teacher, when I was mowing the lawn or something like that. I'd run through all the different scenarios, the difficult situations I had to solve. And I'd practice my language, talking to myself. But uh, it's much harder when you're recording yourself. Anyway, back to the questions. Here's one from Zoe. Dual coding. Why is this so important to children's learning? What style of dual coding is effective for them and you? And how does this impact on working walls? Well, I'm a big dual coding fan. I'll go on and on and on and on about it because I think it's so important for learning. So first of all, let's be clear. What do we mean by dual coding? For me, it's simply about providing visual materials that support and illustrate the verbal explanations given by the teacher and the children. When you teach this way, children have two ways of processing the information being discussed. And this enables them to develop a deeper understanding of the concept. Plus, it provides an image that they can add to their prior understanding of that idea. Now, if the dual coding is done on a flip chart or on paper and added to the working wall, you've created a great resource to use during the lesson and afterwards. And this will aid children in remembering the information at a later time, because we can endlessly go back to it as many times as we want simply by flicking through the bits of paper on the flip chart or on the working wall. Say, remember this? Just tell your partner, what are the key ideas? What is the most important element of learning that we got here? And that's so valuable because Rosenshine's principles, of course, recall is really important. If we want to embed things in long-term memory, 
we have to give children plenty of practice of things they have previously learnt. Now, research suggests that creating a drawing from a piece of information requires you to elaborate on its meaning. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If I want to do a drawing, I've got to really consider the information to decide how best to represent it. And I've then got to create the necessary motor movements with a pencil and use pictorial processing so that I can look at my drawing once it's finished and say, yes, that represents the key idea. Now, this deeper processing, of course, helps you to cement the information, doesn't it, into long-term memory. And this is not just something that teachers should do, of course. I used to use it a lot with my children and teach them how to dual code. So they're doing a science lesson, for example, and I'll teach them how to use dual coding to record their findings or to summarise a key concept. And when you do this, of course, some children say, I can't draw. I'm no good at art, but we're not talking about art because I can't draw either and I'm useless at art as well. You want to see my drawings? The most important thing is that your drawings have meaning and they represent the information you need to remember, even if this is only meaningful to you. Drawings are a great way to boost learning because they give children this other element to help them remember what they've learned. Just imagine you're sitting in like you are now, listening to someone talking, 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 talking. Well, maybe I can process that information, but there will come a point when actually my working memory is full. And we all know that the spoken word fills working memory quicker than anything else. So how do we make the working memory empty a bit, give it a bit more space? We dual code. We draw a picture. We add labels to that picture. And that gives children a much easier way of summarising the information and understanding it. I was in a lesson the other day and the teacher was talking about sound and how air particles vibrated. And the teacher drew a lovely diagram of someone with their mouth open and the sound waves travelling out from them and knocking the air molecules until they reached the person's ear. And the children could understand that much, much better than they could understand the explanation that the teacher had given. It enabled them to hang the explanation on the drawing. Now, dual coding expert Oliver Caviglioli, I always struggle to say his name, I must practice that, Caviglioli, suggests there's four key principles for using dual coding. And he says they're these. Number one, cut. Reduce the amount of content. Be selective and only use the most important information. Keep it as simple as possible so there is no overload, as otherwise you may have made the learning more confusing. And that's a key idea for when you are dual coding as the teacher. Draw the minimal amount with the key ideas illustrated. He also says chunk. If you need to do more than one bit of dual coding, make sure that your diagrams and labels are grouped, that they're related, so children can go from one piece of dual coding to the next, and they can see how the two diagrams are linked, because they contain related but different information. He also says a line is important, 
what he means by that is make sure the words and pictures are neatly ordered so they're easy to read and easy to refer back to. And this, again, is important, isn't it? If you put something on the working wall, a bit of dual coding you've done to illustrate a concept, and then you want to go back to it, it needs to be easy for children to read and clear. And therefore, make sure you do things neatly and in an ordered way. And the last thing he says is restrain. Avoid overdoing it. In other words, don't use lots of colours or fonts. The power is in the simplicity. Love those suggestions. Really good. And of course, we've just talked about using dual coding for recap and recall. Because when the lesson is finished, you take your bit of dual coding on your flip chart, you tear the sheet off, you stick it up on your working wall, whichever working wall it is. Refer back to it next week. Refer back to it next month. Keep referring back to it until that information is embedded in long-term memory. That's a great way of constantly recalling and bringing back the learning that you have done with the children. Immensely useful. I can't recommend it enough. Honest. Ah, oh, here's another great question. This one came from Leanne. How can you ensure your TA has the most impact within the classroom? Now, when I, I was a head teacher, I used to spend a fortune on TAs. Why? Because I thought they really enhanced the learning. They really enhanced the support for the teachers. And how did they do that? Because they were well-managed, they were well-deployed, and they were well-trained. So when you're a teacher and you meet your teaching assistant for the first time, the key thing you have to do is make sure that you establish a way of working with your TA so you become a powerful team. It's a team. It's not you telling the TA what to do because the TA will have a range of experiences that will be really useful for you too. So your role, top of your list, we must become a great team. We've got to support each other. We've got to share ideas and problems, and we've got to identify how best to help the children. Because then the impact of the team, you and your TA, will be huge. So what's the most important thing in developing this way of working? Well, top of the list, of course, and this applies to all of us, make sure that the TAs know what is expected of them. Whilst it's difficult to ensure that TAs are fully prepared for everything that may happen in the classroom every day, there is no excuse for not having clear ways of working for the TA that ensures they have maximum impact. For example, the teacher and the TA must, I'm going to say that again, the teacher and the TA must believe that all children can achieve and be successful. This sounds obvious, doesn't it? but I regularly hear conversation in schools that suggests that some children can't achieve. And guess what? They don't. So a real conviction in a growth mindset approach or whatever term your school uses is an absolute essential. All children can achieve and it's the job of the teacher and the TA to make it happen and to make the child believe that they can achieve a great deal. Again, something I see in school quite regularly is the TA taking responsibility for the child's learning. I used to have a phrase when I saw a TA over-supporting a child. I used to say, Madam, step away from the child. 
using my American police officer voice. And they'd go, what? And I'd say, step away from the child, ma'am. He's in danger of being over-supported. Over-supporting children, so detrimental to them because it makes them feel like they can't achieve on their own. They have to have an adult guiding them all the time. For any child, whatever his or her ability, only provide the minimum amount of support necessary so the child can work independently. And once a child is clear about how to be successful with his or her learning, go and work with someone else and leave the child to work without support. I remember once saying to my TA, who was brilliant and together we were a great team, Sally, if you're listening, I loved working with you, man. She was a woman, actually, but I'm a 60s boy, so I often say man. And uh, once she said, they're all working. It's fantastic. They're all being very independent. What shall I do? I said, go and make me a cup of tea because I'm dying of thirst here. She said, really? I said, yeah, really. I said, this is what we've been working towards, isn't it? Children being able to work independently, even those with some severe learning problems. So let's celebrate it. Let's both have a cup of tea. We didn't do that too often, of course, but it represented the fact that we'd achieved what we were aiming for. Now, another thing that's essential is that the TA works with different groups of children. Only in the most exceptional cases should they work with the same children every day. The teacher is the lead professional, and she or he must work with all the children on a regular basis. If we want to close the gap and enable lower attaining children to make the most progress they can, then they must work with the teacher more often than not. If the TA teaches them, and I've worked with some brilliant TAs, but they haven't been trained to the level the teacher has, and in most cases, they haven't got the subject knowledge the teacher has. So who should work with the lower attaining children? The teacher. I'll say that again. I've done this quite a lot today, haven't I? I'll say that again. But these are such important things. Who should work with the lower attaining pupils most? The teacher. Now, another essential thing is to agree that the learning objectives and the success criteria are the focus of feedback in lessons. Too often, the learning is dumbed down as it's perceived as too difficult for a lower attaining child. This is such bad practice. I've regularly heard that children gain confidence from completing tasks, and they could only do that if it was made easier for them. Wrong! Children do not gain confidence from completing easy tasks. They believe that they aren't capable of achieving like other children. Even worse, some TAs believe that telling children what to do, in effect doing the work for them, is being kind and helpful. Wrong! It just makes them feel inadequate. I used to say to mine when they used to ask me for help, I used to say, what are you going to do when you're 25? They said, what do you mean? I said, are you going to come up to me in the street if you've got a problem in your life and ask me to sort it out for you? No. I said, well, don't do it in here then. Rule one, you do your thinking. When you've done your thinking and you're stuck and you've got nowhere else to go, then ask me. I remember once being in a classroom and, and a TA was helping a child measure some lines with a ruler. They had to draw a line, you know, so many centimetres long. The child said, I don't know how to do that. So the TA picked up the ruler, picked up the pencil, 
said, what's number one say? Seven meters, seven centimeters, and drew seven centimeters in the child's book. She said, there, now do you know how to do it? I said, excuse me, you've just done their work for them. She said, well, I was modeling. I thought we were meant to model. I said, you are meant to model, but you don't model the work for them. What you do is you model a similar task on your whiteboard. I always used to say to my TAs, you have to have a whiteboard. You have to have it with you all the time because you're going to be using it all the time to model. Do not model in the children's book. Model on the whiteboard so they can see what they've got to do and then they can do the work themselves. The other thing we do, of course, is, uh, is have on the wall questions for the teacher, the TA and the children to use when they get stuck or when they're unsure. The list I used to have in my classroom, I've got it printed out here in front of me. Number one was, what are we learning today? What do we need to do to be successful? What do we have to do first? Are you using the success criteria to help you? What did the class teacher or TA do to show you how to do that? Should you do this or this first? What should you do next? And have we done all of the steps as well as we can? Therefore, are we successful? And we had those questions up on the wall. And then anytime someone got stuck, as well as using the learning objective, as well as using the success criteria, as well as using the dual coding that was on the flip chart or the working out that was on the, on the whiteboard, they could use those questions. And it developed their independence and it helped the TA as well who said, I don't know what to say. Use the questions. Pick which question you think is most appropriate. Ask them it. Better still refer them to those questions. Because what we want to do is make the teaching assistant redundant. No, not sack them, but just mean that they can go and make more tea. There are lots of other things, of course, that could be done. But these are the key things that will make your TA effective at supporting the pupils in your class. So don't be afraid to agree with your TA the things that are most important for developing children's learning. But what if you can't agree? Well, if you can't agree, you're the lead professional in the class and the lead professional has to make decisions, sometimes difficult ones. So don't be afraid to tell the TA why you think something should be done a particular way and explain why you think that. And then be humble enough to say, and if it doesn't work, we'll try your way. But we're going to try my way first. Now, Joe, how does building relationships with each child impact on their self-belief, motivation and learning success? Well, there's so much research evidence and all of you listening will have anecdotal evidence, as I have too that makes it clear that relationships that are empathetic, warm, encourage thinking and learning are clearly related to children participating more, thinking better, believing more in themselves, and being positive about what they can achieve. Basically, they're happier children. It couldn't be clearer in the research. Learning is improved when the relationship between teachers and children is a positive one. And it doesn't matter how old the children are. Children who perceive their teachers to be supportive of their needs and interests are more engaged, 
They're more motivated, they're more self-directed, and they're more socially connected at school than their peers. That bit's really important. They're at ease with people. Why are they at ease? Because they've built a very strong relationship with their teacher. They know how to relate to people. That is so important. So what's the best way for teachers to build positive relationships with the children in their class? I think top of the list personally is for the teacher to be kind. Yes, kind. That really matters. When children feel safe and secure working with the teacher and are confident that even if things go horribly wrong and it's their fault, if the teacher will deal with that with kindness, then they'll respond positively. Learning is then enhanced. Teachers who demonstrate a variety of behaviours associated with kindness, things like warmth, care, support, encouragement, you can demand so much more from the children you teach because the children feel safe with you. Research suggests that these behaviours increase a learner's creativity, their autonomy, their satisfaction in the work they do. And this, of course, results in better outcomes. It's not difficult to see why, is it? When I was at school, my teachers show few of these qualities, and I hugely underperformed. How about this for a fact? I was the top pupil in Essex at age 11 in the 11-plus exam, and I went to the local grammar school. I went with a lot of trepidation. I'd heard lots of rumours. At the end of the first year, after we'd done our exams, I was 92nd out of 93 pupils in year seven. So why was that? How could I go from the top pupil in Essex in the 11 plus to be 92nd out of 93? Well, much of it was down to the fact that I was scared to think, scared to share my opinion, scared to engage because I feared being ridiculed in front of my peers. Because that's what happened to you when you got your things wrong. So I messed about instead. It was safer even though I got into trouble for it. But I did excel in one subject, biology. I loved biology and I ended up doing a biology degree. So why was that? Because the teacher treated me as an individual and tried to help me. She always seemed pleased to see me and the rest of the class. She laughed with us and explained things if we didn't understand. I wasn't alone in loving her lessons as she was so different to almost every other teacher in the school. She had time for us all and we responded by trying really hard to please her and to impress her. We always left her class feeling more positive and this positivity stayed with us and protected us from some of the harsher teachers. Now John Hattie, hope you've heard of John Hattie. If you haven't, look him up, an Australian researcher. He once did an analysis, can't remember how many, how many analyses he did, but I think he looked at about 800 analyses of effective education. And one of the key findings was that if teachers create environments where children feel safe to learn and explore the things they don't understand or find difficult, which includes, of course, making mistakes, then the children learn more effectively. Surprise! And when that was combined with precise feedback from teacher to pupil, and just as importantly, feedback from the pupils to their teacher on what they found difficult and why, then the children made rapid progress. 
feedback must be two-way. I used to spend endless time saying to my class, have I taught you well today? What could I have done better? What bits did you find hard today? Was that down to my teaching or was that because just the idea was hard? Let me know. And after they got off over that first idea, you know, the first time I asked them that, they used to get quite silly and said, you're hopeless, you should be fired. I said, no, I'm being serious here. I want a, a proper conversation. I want you to tell me because then I can teach you better. And they did. And why did they do that? Because we had a secure trusting relationship. They knew that they could be honest with me and I would be honest with them. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Children will work harder and do things, even tricky things like fractions or frontal adverbials for people they love and trust. So make sure that's the type of teacher you are. Right, the last question. You've done very well if you've got this far, because I'm still talking and you're still listening. Hurrah, congratulations. Have a sticker. How do you instill a high expectations culture in the classroom? This is essential, isn't it? You've got to have high expectations. We hear it all the time. It's a phrase bandied around education endlessly. But how do you get it? Well, top of the list. Top, I've said that quite a few times today, haven't I? Top of the list is that children have to believe that they will do well when they try hard. So every single day, we have to tell the children in our class that they can do really well if they make lots of effort. It was Carol Dweck, wasn't it? You know, the growth mindset psychologist who said something like, if students believe their intelligence can be developed, they'll do better than those who believe their intelligence is fixed. Stating the blooming obvious. So how do we help children believe in this idea? The key thing, I think, is to focus on how much effort children make rather than how good their work is. High expectations aren't about telling children they have to be as good as the best child in the class. They're all about getting the children to do their best in every lesson, trying to be better than they were in the last lesson. So if you work hard, you get endlessly praised. If you produce good work, but you didn't make your best effort, and it wasn't better than your previous work, you don't get endlessly praised. When a child has tried as hard as they can, tell them you're proud of them. They've worked really hard. They deserve praise. And if you do nothing else in your classroom to instill high expectations, do this. Because once you've got those children in your class working as hard as they can, their progress will be fantastic. But what else can you do? Well, when a pupil comes to you with completed work that is below what they're capable of, don't accept it. Ask them to improve it or redo it. You only accept work when children have genuinely tried hard to do it as well as they can. If you do this consistently, then children very quickly learn that this is what they have to do in your class. Children set their standards based on the standards you set. So set your standards high. When I took over as a head teacher a school that was in the bottom 5% nationally, academically, um, I had a staff meeting and I said, I'm a bit concerned about our standards. This was when I first went to the school. And one of the teachers said, it's all the children can do. God, blimey, I was happy to hear that message. Because I then said, that's great. All you've got to do is change your mindset now 
I'm going to monitor for the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be in and out of classes all the time. And I will hear you say to the children, I think you can do a bit more than that. And you'll tell them what they can do a bit more of. And I did that. I went around and all the teachers, God bless them, uh, were doing that. Guess what? The next year we were in the middle 50% of schools. Guess what? The next year we were in the top 20% of schools. Now we had done lots of work, of course, but basically the key thing we changed was the expectation. We told the children they could do better. And then we told them what they had to do to do better. And guess what? They did it. Now, another thing you have to do if that's going to work is express a never-ending positive belief and confidence that children can achieve a great deal. And this must never, 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 guess what the next word's going to be? Never waver, ever. Even when you set challenging work, which you must, you've got to be positive that children can achieve it. If you provide children with work that lacks challenge, they'll think that they can achieve a lot with not much effort. And we want children coming into class knowing that they are going to be doing hard work. But with effort and positive support of the teacher, they'll be able to do it. Back in the old days when Ofsted was proper, proper mate, um, and we had five inspectors for five days in the first inspection where uh, in a school where I was working, and I got watched 13 times for one hour because I was in year six as a teacher and they came and watched me endlessly. And I taught a technology lesson. Blooming good lesson it was. It was on uh, children were deconstructing those pop-up cards, you know, with levers and folds and all sorts of things to find out how they worked. And the inspector said to me, that's a satisfactory lesson. I said, you've got to be joking. That was a great lesson. They learned so much. He said, the work was too hard. I said, I'm sorry, you're wrong. How do you know it was too hard? He said, I know. He didn't say, because I'm an inspector, though he might as well have done. I said, have you asked the children? And he said, no. I said, what? So you think it's too hard, but you haven't asked the children. Go and ask the children. Anyway, he went to lovely Alison, uh, who was just the most delightful pupil. And he said, uh, did you think that work today was too hard when you were taking those cards apart and trying to work out how they worked? And she said, oh, no, she said, the work's always hard in Mr. Crook's class, but we can always do it. I love you, Alison. What a great thing to say that was. And that was the point. It was really hard. And I said to the inspector, why do you think the results in my class are so good? And he said, well, you're going to say because you set really challenging work. I said, exactly, that's what I'm going to say. So why should, if I set it in maths and English what and science, why shouldn't I set it in technology? Anyway, he said it was still satisfactory. I couldn't sway him. Um, it was the only satisfactory judgment I got. I got a certificate for the outstanding quality of my teaching, don't you know? Don't know what that's worth particularly, but anyway, I guess it made it worthwhile, all that work I put in. Anyway, all that means we should only praise things when children have earned the praise. Don't just praise them for completing a task. Praise them for the hard work they put in for completing the task to the best of their ability. If you praise children too much, they'll think your praise is easy to get. And this will mean they'll be less motivated to impress you with how hard they're working. 
they'll also know that the praise isn't genuine because they know when they've worked really hard and they know when they're praised for not doing much. So be positive. Endlessly encourage your children to be as good as they can be. But make sure your constant enthusiasm is not replaced with meaningless praise. Keep your praise proportionate to the achievement. They work really hard. They get loads of praise. Praise is something to be really proud of. It's not something to be dished out left, right and centre just for the sake of it. Something else I really believe strongly in, and, and loads of people will disagree with me, is that schools should not be transactional. What do I mean by that? You work hard, you get a present. If I work hard, I get a sticker. What? No, I work hard because then I feel proud of myself. I think children have to see that schoolwork is about long-term personal achievement. And by long-term, we mean over a day, over a week, over a month, over a year. And what we should be doing is promoting intrinsic motivation. What do I mean by that? A love of learning, the thrill of overcoming a challenge, knowing that you couldn't have tried any harder, and then being publicly praised for it. Personally, I think that's much more useful than in extrinsic motivation. Here's a sticker. I never had stickers in my class, could never see the point. If you're consistent in your approach to creating a high expectation classroom, you will have a high expectation classroom. Consistent, that's the word. Get in a class culture in which hard work and personal improvement are the most important things takes time. So, persevere. Be consistent with your expectations. Ensure children know what you expect in terms of effort and application. If you expect excellence one day, but don't the next, or accept poor behaviour or low-quality work, the culture you're trying to create won't happen. Remember, if you set low standards, you get low effort. If you set high standards, you get high effort. If you're a teacher who tells children they can achieve anything they want if they work really hard, then in my experience, they do. So I hope you found those uh, question and answer pieces useful. Uh, if you didn't, you've probably switched off by now. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, I've got a guest coming back, of course, uh, which will be fascinating as it always is. But until then, this is the latest podcast from what I wish I knew as an NQT slash ECT.